0: plushcare.com slash weight the
1: history channel original podcast
2: it's kind of the infinite variety of ways one can experience an oreo i'm kind of just a brute force cruncher you can take that little sandwich cookie and twist it and you can eat the cream out if that's your fancy and have a glass of milk
1: When I was growing up, though, if you could get that clean twist, I mean, you were basically a professional eater.
0: Everyone has their own particular way of eating cookies, Oreos in particular. Maybe you pull them apart or scrape out the filling. Maybe you dunk them in milk till they're soft and unrecognizable. It's all good. We don't judge. These cookies are delicious, ubiquitous, and iconic. Everybody eats them in a different way, but everybody loves them. Oreos are the great uniter. That's why it's so ironic that they exist in part because of a war between two cookie makers. This is The Food That Built America, stories of innovation, taste, and good eats. Today, we'll tell the story of the most popular cookie company in history and how an ill-fated partnership left one man to reimagine the way we eat cookies. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Before there were cookies, there were biscuits. And I don't mean a fluffy, flaky, cylindrical pastry with melted butter. What Americans call biscuits were actually more like what we now recognize as crackers. And these crackers were really a reliable source of cheap, filling calories. That's according to Libby O'Connell, a historian at the Smithsonian Institution. A cracker
3: is a savory biscuit. It's thin, usually, and has a lot of crunch
0: to it and she says the biscuit itself is actually one of the oldest foods in the history of man. In fact, there's evidence people were eating them in some form or another in the ancient Roman times. They were served on ships. They don't go bad
3: easily. They sort of have a cardboard component to them, and they last very long. They would be stored in barrels, um, used by the Navy and on ships. They'd also be used by work crews. Um, I think they're real attribute is that they're hard and they last a long time. Doesn't sound too tasty. Sure doesn't. And for people who were working, it just made a difference. They could have a cookie whenever they wanted. It was a luxury that didn't have a luxurious price tag.
0: By the 1890s, as the Industrial Revolution continued to catapult the United States into a new era, food was getting a lot more advanced too. Suddenly, there was mass production, national brands, companies like Campbell's Soup and Coca-Cola were new and exciting, and ushered in the dawn of a nationalized, industrialized palate. But one industry was kind of limping behind the parade of shiny new food, baked goods. While most Americans were snacking on crackers, freshly baked goods, and what we now recognize as cookies, those were really for the rich.
3: Really, they are not what you eat every day unless you're in a very wealthy household.
0: There was a big reason why cookies hadn't reached the masses yet. They had a major preservation issue.
3: The bakery businesses were small, local bakeries. There was always a problem with freshness. Maybe you've made wonderful bread, it's fresh. How do you get it to your consumers outside of the sort of a walking radius and make sure that it's still in good condition? You're sending it out by something that's pulled by a horse. The whole distribution system is not set up for something that traditionally has to be nearby you.
0: Which opened up a major opportunity for invention by a man by the name of Adolphus Green. I'll let Stella Parks introduce you to Adolphus Green. Parks wrote the book, Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts.
2: Adolphus Green is a Harvard educated lawyer and he did a lot of litigation. That was kind of his specialty. He was a really interesting case of a lawyer who had a taste for business. As far as I know, Adolphus Green didn't have any background in
0: food. No background in food, but a real appetite for opportunity. So when two brothers, Jacob and Joseph Luce, approached him with a question about a merger in 1890, Adolphus saw an opening. After Standard Oil, when John D. Rockefeller created a conglomerate by merging smaller refineries, industries were merging left and right. The Loose Brothers wanted in, this time with the baking industry. The brothers, who were running Loose Brothers Manufacturing, wanted to join forces with smaller commercial bakeries instead of competing with one another. O'Connell says their goal was expansion.
3: How do you get there? One way you do it is through acquisition. That sounds like a very modern term, but that's what they were doing.
0: So they called up Adolphus Green, the savvy lawyer.
2: The Luce brothers hired him to oversee this merger of all these bakeries and to bring them together and make sure they were doing everything in an above-the-bar way.
0: With Adolphus Green overseeing the merger, 40 small bakeries agreed to join forces. It was actually a compelling proposition for them. Competition was tough, and this would make it easier for them, level the playing field. So in 1890, with Jacob Luce at the helm, the American Biscuit Company was born. But even with the combined forces of 40 bakeries, the company wasn't a monopoly. They were competing with two other major conglomerates, the New York Biscuit Company and the United States Baking Company.
2: Where these three major companies are all trying to outsell each other and undersell each other. And it was like this fierce, fierce competition. It was called the Biscuit Wars.
0: Profits went through the roof. Suddenly the market was saturated with cheap crackers knocking down prices baked goods were becoming more and more available to regular people. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Green wasn't done after he merged the 40 bakeries. He had a new itch. He was so skilled at the first merger, he thought he'd try his hand again, this time with the three biggest shows in town. In 1898, American Biscuit Company, New York Biscuit Company, and the United States Baking Company came together as one. Libby O'Connell again.
3: This becomes the National Biscuit Company, which
0: we know today as Nabisco. Stella says Nabisco even had its own logo.
2: The Nabisco logo, which is called the Nabisco Thing, um, it's taken from a Venetian printer symbol. Somehow this is supposed to symbolize the entire world and also the cross to evoke feelings of purity and cleanliness.
0: There was just one problem. Green had gone rogue. One year earlier, in 1897, Jacob Luce had to step down from his role as president of American Biscuit for health reasons and move to Europe. He wasn't involved in the day-to-day operations of the company. And when he learned of the merger, he was pretty ticked off. He felt steamrolled, but the deal went forward and with Jacob still gone, Joseph Luce felt sidelined.
2: When the ink dried is Joseph Luce on the board of directors. So he was there from the beginning. Jacob Luce is not to be found. So this is where he gets, I wouldn't say cut out of that deal, because he didn't want to be a part of that deal, um, but where he is, is no longer a major player
0: in this industry. The Luce brothers saw this as a power grab, especially because Adolphus was cutting deals in private. The lawyer with practically no baking experience was now basically running the nation's cookie empire. Adolphus was so wildly driven, he didn't care who got in his way, and he didn't care which bridges he burned along the way. Green's rise to power was imminent. And he'd seal the deal, literally and metaphorically, with one key innovation. Here's the thing. Before all this, crackers were sold out of a cracker barrel. And Libby O'Connell says they were really quite nasty.
3: So when we say getting something from the bottom of the barrel, there's a reason why that saying is still used today. It means that you're really getting just the stuff you don't want.
0: And what's at the bottom of the barrel? Bugs, melted crackers, broken crackers.
3: There will be mold. There are all sorts of germy environments that would horrify today's consumer. Even if you don't think of yourself as picky, this was pretty gross. I'll say.
0: Under Green's leadership, his company started using a moisture-proof package called an Inner Seal that had been patented in 1899. It kept air out and wicked away moisture, basically folded wax inside cardboard to keep air and moisture out.
3: Biscuits and crackers, and including different types of wrapping for these and presentation for the consumer. It's really going to be a game changer. It's going to make people
0: healthier. This would pave the way for packaged goods.
2: An incredible amount of tin was put into production to make you know groundbreaking innovation of packaging genius.
0: Green was on a roll and ambitious. He wanted to create products that would become bestsellers. He found that with the Unita Biscuit, which the company had introduced the year before in
3: 1898. The Unita Biscuit is flaky and crispy. It's not thin as paper. It has a little depth to it, and it has this, the name Unita on top. You also see little pinpricks in the dough. Um, it's a rectangle. And it was something that you could eat with a glass of milk and have a healthy breakfast.
0: Once the company introduced the fresh seal packaging, the Unita Biscuit became a runaway hit. By 1900, they were selling 10 million packages of the biscuit per month. They came out with other products, too. Green wanted to create more baked goods that could compete on a national scale, basically flooding the market with some iconic cookies.
2: So they took their animal crackers, which were, again, a generic item that was produced by every bakery in America, practically, and they rebranded them as Barnum's Animals. And they took this basic soda cracker that was nothing special, necessarily. Everyone made a soda cracker, it was a real common staple, and they renamed it the You Need a Biscuit.
0: Suddenly, there were options.
2: Because it was just like always something new and always something to try, and to kind of realize that there is no person alive today that was not born under the sun of Fig Newtons is wild. And I think that's an important kind of piece of context to really understand how these brands have influenced our country.
0: But Adolphus Green couldn't take the world by storm that fast. C is for cookie, but it's also for competition. Four years after the Unita Biscuit was introduced, the Loose brothers felt they had no choice. Green was taking over without them. They were going to fight back, In 1902, they left Nabisco behind and started what would become Sunshine Biscuits. They set up shop in Kansas City. But after a few years, began construction on what would become their signature factory in New York City.
3: They leave. They call themselves Sunshine Brand because they're going to build a factory filled with windows that lets
0: the sunshine in for all of their workers. Nice touch. And instead of biscuits, they had a new idea the Loose Brothers wanted to enter the ring with a product Nabisco still didn't have, the cookie. Bringing cookies to the masses meant everyone got a cookie.
3: It means that women who are working, who have a little extra money, are able to bring home cookies and not feel like, oh, my children are deprived because I never have time to bake for them.
0: It wasn't just that. The Loose Brothers concocted a delicious new idea. Add chocolate. Imagine, cocoa, In a cracker.
2: They really increase the amount of cocoa powder that's in the dough, and that changes everything in terms of the flavor and the texture.
0: Cocoa would go on the outside, and on the inside, dollop of vanilla cream. In 1908, the same year the Luce Brothers started construction on their so-called Thousand Windows Factory in Long Island City, the cookie sandwich was born. This is sounding familiar. You just wait. So the Loose brothers built a factory in Green's backyard right across the river from him in Long Island City and started making these little cookie sandwiches with two crackers on the outside and a little cream on the inside.
1: It lives in its own world.
2: You can take that little sandwich cookie and twist it and you can eat the cream out if that's your fancy and have a glass of milk that ritual of how you eat something will definitely ingrain your desire for that in a different way than if it's something that's a little bit more generic.
0: It's a hit. They call it the Or- Nope, they call it the Hydrox. Yeah, the Hydrox. Made you look. But stay with me here. Adolphus Green watched this all go down from his own cookie tower over in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York. The Nabisco
3: factory in Chelsea was high tech, right? Well, we're thinking Elon Musk rocket launches. This factory had everything that was modern. There was fresh air coming into the factory. They had the right amount of work days. They were very progressive employers. They also had train tracks coming right up to their factory.
0: Despite all this innovation, back in his cookie factory, Adolphus Green noticed his products weren't looking so new and shiny.
2: You know, if his number one competitor has a chocolate and vanilla sandwich cookie on the market, his company would need to have a chocolate and vanilla sandwich cookie on the market. It's it's just very much a natural and logical alternative. So I don't know that it was a vindictiveness on his part, but certainly given Adolphus Green's association with Jacob Luce in the past, it's hard not to kind of see a little bit of, like, elbowing and jostling for position that might be happening there.
0: Green wasn't about to let his cookie empire crumble. Cookie wars were on. So in a huge moment, Green approached Milton Hershey, who'd also helped out with Sunshine's Hydrox. Green wanted his own sandwich cookie. He wanted to compete with the Hydrox. It was kind of ruthless. And in 1912, the Oreo was born. The two products were pretty similar. Chocolate shortbread with sweet vanilla fondant in the middle. The difference was in the design. Stella Park says Hydrox was much more intricate.
2: The level of detail work in a Hydrox was kind of ridiculous. It had a scalloped border around the whole edge of it, and then there's like these thin little leaves that went around, and then there were six individual flowers, and each one had so many petals that were well-defined and a perfect center that was well-defined. And then the name Hydrox is written across the middle in a, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a very evocative font. And then there is a laurel wreath encircling the name Hydrox. So that level of detail in a cookie had certainly never been seen before.
0: Hydrox had way prettier design, but the two products were actually pretty similar in taste.
2: We can only assume that they were very close in flavor and texture because that was the goal, was to be able to mimic what the other company was doing. Um, and they would have all been very skilled in their formulas, so I don't see any reason for Nabisco to fail at matching the Hydrox in flavor if not exceeding it.
0: Oreo's rise to fame didn't happen all at once. In fact, for a while, Hydrox was one of the most popular cookies in America and was considered the king of biscuits. But that would change in time. Stella Parks says that at some point, Oreo hiked up their price, showing the world that they were a higher quality product, made Hydrox look kind of cheap.
2: Hydrox is struggling at this point. They're trying to compete with advertising. They're trying to compete with market shares. and They're trying to stay afloat.
0: And Hydrox's name didn't do them any favors. Consumers said it sounded generic or worse, like a chemical company. But Hydrox clung on with ads that insisted they were the original.
2: And which
3: cookie is the original cream-filled chocolate cookie? Sunshine Hydrox! Anybody
2: knows that!
0: But in the end, the Loose's Sunshine Biscuits wasn't as big as Nabisco. And that made a huge difference.
2: And they don't have the buying power or the stamina that a company like the National Biscuit Company would. And so for them, it's a little bit more of a struggle to kind of maintain this race. And meanwhile, Nabisco hasn't really even broken a sweat. They're able to absorb any kind of loss that Oreo is bringing them.
0: Hydrox would become less popular, but it would stay on the shelves. Even Joanna Saltz, editorial director for Delish.com and House Beautiful, says she knows some people say they swear it tastes better than Oreos.
1: I mean... People also love Hydrox. People have an association to Hydrox, and there are some people who insist that those are even better tasting than Oreo. Oreos is just really good at making themselves louder and bigger, and they're constantly doing more things. I mean, there's something to be said about the Hydrox company who did one thing really well for a really long time.
0: But Stella Parks says Hydrox never made its big cookie comeback.
2: Eventually, Hydrox remains in production strictly to function as the crushed up cookies and off-brand cookies and cream ice cream. And that's just, that's that's like Greek tragedy level of sad.
0: By contrast, nowadays, it doesn't really matter where you live. You can find an Oreo cookie anywhere.
2: It's like equally
1: part of our childhood and equally part of our culture. We have lots of Oreos in our house, and frankly, whenever I see a new flavor, I buy a package to come home and do a taste test.
0: Joanna's right. Long gone are the days when you'd see a traditional Oreo cookie on the shelves. There's birthday cake, mint Oreos, churro Oreos, red velvet. There's even a Lady Gaga Oreo, lime green filling sandwich between two pink outside.
4: Autumn.
1: The ones we bought most recently were these carrot cake Oreos, which are a totally bizarre experience, but also really addictive. Like, caramelly, but also cinnamony. To be honest, you shouldn't put carrots in your Oreos, but, you know, we gotta try it.
0: Well, part of the fun is trying it, right?
2: And what's available at, uh, is it after-school snack or what's available? Is it? Treat or what's available on a road trip, and it's the it becomes the same for all of us, regardless of where we live within the country, and regardless of an income level. That's kind of a it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or just scraping by.
0: Oreos came into being because of the consolidation of the biscuit cookie industry, so it kind of makes sense that the Oreo has come to represent a sort of universal experience of American childhood. Most of us had a very similar childhood experience of dunking an Oreo in a tall glass of milk.
2: Everyone's kind of fond of Oreos, so it's really managed to appeal across generations and class boundaries and the miles and really establish itself as an American cultural icon.
0: If you like this podcast, then you'll love watching the Food That Built America TV series on the History Channel. Go to history.com to find out how you can watch The Food That Built America today. The Food That Built America is hosted by me, Jonathan Hirsch. At The History Channel, our executive producers are Jesse Katz, Mary Donahue, and Jim Pascarella. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. From Neon hum Media, our executive producer is me. The series is produced by Muna Danish and Kate Mishkin. Our associate producers are Chloe Choble and Rufaro Faith. Our editor is Maura Waltz. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Alexis Martinez is our podcast coordinator. Sam Baer and Josh Hahn are our mix engineers. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound and fact-checking by Naomi Barr. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for The History Channel.